Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Dr. Keith Jagger, University Chaplain at John Brown University. Prior to coming to JBU, Keith served in pastoral ministry in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Keith earned his doctoral degree in New Testament at St. Andrews in Scotland. Please help me welcome for the first time home our new chaplain, Keith Jagger. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate that. Yes, I am a hobbit at heart, even though I'm kind of tall. So that's amazing. It's wonderful to be here with you guys today. Uh, You all have been so fun to watch as you arrived here, especially during orientation, Uh, moving into your dorms, eating gobs of cereal in mass, uh, serving the community together, and um, watermelons. That's all I gotta say. Big games was like a spectacle that I still need to process. Um, and I, I actually did, uh, was on the front row of the orange team as you guys went out your, your watermelon. Okay, come on. And so we need to work, uh, like let me know who you are because I, I, I know who you are. <laughs> and we have to like get over that in our relationship. Um, no, that was awesome. It was really incredible. Was so much fun. Well, I have all the feels this morning as you might imagine appreciative, um, some nerves, but at the end of the day, really excited to get to walk alongside of you guys and to help lead you spiritually moving forward. Um, Looking forward to getting to know you guys better for sure. And I know it's been a long time in coming for you to have a chaplain, uh, and it's amazing really at the end of the day, at the end of that process, to get to be that for you and to walk with you. And one of the parts that I'm looking forward to in all of that Um, is getting to open scripture before you uh, time after time throughout the semester. And especially this semester as we study the gospel of Mark, as we studied Jesus who lived and died and was resurrected 2,000 years ago, but is still living and active and with us even today as he guides and transforms us. And so before we jump into the word today, let's take a moment to calm our hearts and uh, invite you to pray with me. Father, I'm not sure where everyone is at today. Uh, I'm not sure what's happening in their home lives, uh, what's happening in their relationships. I'm not sure what's happening in their classrooms or their minds or their hearts, but you do. You know each one of us, and you're not sitting off to the side somewhere today or on Saturn, but you're here and ready to speak to us. So give us ears to hear you today and communicate to us, speak to us in the ways that really only you can. Amen. Right. So let's get into a bit of a recap here. Um, And I'm going to spend about the next 25 minutes or so digging into the scriptures, which should give a little bit of an opportunity to share some of my story with you uh, and then to help orient you to the semester's theme today. On Tuesday, Dr. Pollard covered Mark chapter 1 and focused on John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who prophetically prepared the hearts of Israel by way of repentance. 
And he opened their minds to the ways of selfishness that we can get into um, and the way of selflessness that Jesus would come and further establish. And ultimately, John prepared the way for God, who was promising to return in a, pro- in a powerful way t- to Israel. And you might have been challenged on Tuesday, like I was, about this idea of a heart turned in on itself, uh, this selfishness that we have, and how Jesus came to show a completely other way and help us to live that out to the fullest. And so Mark 1, Jesus emerges as the Son of God, the Prince of Israel, finally born in his baptism and temptation. And after this, Jesus begins his public ministry by carrying on John's message of repentance and good news. Jesus goes about gathering up some followers, some disciples, um, and heals people of physical brokenness in many ways, and even of demon possession. And he launches his teaching and preaching ministry. So in Mark chapter two, where we find ourselves today, we're really still at the beginning of Jesus emerging as a powerful and authoritative leader. And so as we open Mark two, we read about Jesus healing a paralyzed man and revealing that he has the power to forgive sins, which really only uh, heretofore was afforded to God. God was the one who preserved or to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark has the Pharisees saying. So we see Jesus coming as David's son, the long-awaited prince of Israel, and he calls himself in chapter 2 the son of man, which is another Old Testament figure, this angelic kind of figure who also is sitting on the throne of God. And then he goes and calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, which is very peculiar because God was the one who created the world and built into it a rhythm of rest. And so as the first few chapters unfold, you have this ramping up of this question about Jesus. Who is this man? He's a teacher and a powerful healer, and he's talking about himself in ways that you'd only expect God would talk, and he's doing so reaching back into the long memory of Israel, into the Old Testament. Jesus comes to us in Mark chapter two as a future king and an authority figure. And if this weren't enough, especially if we had the wrong idea about what authority is, Jesus is quick to bring another title that Israel's God had already used in the Old Testament, which was this, groom, bridegroom. And we'll see this now in Mark chapter two. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting. And people came to Jesus and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your people do not fast. And Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom or the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. So here's the problem. The disciples of John the Baptist, the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. They were lamenting, in the way all Israel was. They were lamenting that they were subjects under the Roman Empire. They were praying for release from their captivity. They were praying for mercy for their jailed loved ones. They were praying that the restrictions they experienced under the Roman Empire would relent. They were lifting up the prayers of generations of people who longed to see Israel come into their glory, but it wasn't happening. They only saw in response death and corruption and unjust rule. These were 
Jewish disciples, disciples of John the Baptist and of the Pharisees, and they were acting appropriately. And Jesus steps into this and says, yes, it was appropriate for Israel to act that way as they awaited God's return. But with my coming, things have changed. I'm bringing those expectations now to fulfillment. Like God has spoken of himself in days past, so I will speak of myself now. And I think it's important really that we dip into some of the Old Testament, just very briefly here, uh, because the way Jesus is speaking about himself, called by calling himself the bridegroom, uh, and the disciples, the wedding guests, that he's building on Jewish expectations. Hosea 2, chapter 16, I will speak tenderly to Israel, says the Lord, and on that day you will call me husband. Isaiah chapter 54, do not be afraid, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. I hid my face from you, but with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. So Israel's God in old times promised his return and he reached down into our understanding of human love and said, if you want to know who I am, I am the maker. I'm the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. I am the one who wisely drew this creation out of nothing. I'm the one who called you into being and I'm also your husband. And title by title, Old Testament authority by Old Testament figure, Jesus is piling on in his teachings this way that he's trying to reveal to them who he is. And for a people who were used to a king coming riding in on a horse and offering his protection from on high, by Mark chapter 2, we have a prince of Israel entering into history who can prove his strength with his healings, a person who thinks of himself as an exalted figure, but is above all things down on one knee before Israel, offering his hand to them. And I think this should take our breath away a little bit. And this means for us that our faith in Jesus, for starters, is yes, a faith, a belief that he existed, that he is who he says he is, but the fullness of our faith, as it grows and matures, grows into something like a devotion to a spouse. And Jesus continues this idea in his ministry. I mean, it's a big theme of his. Matthew chapter 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet for the king's son. That's me, the king's son. Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven is like a bridesmaid's waiting for the groom to arrive. And when he came, only some were found prepared and ready. And John chapter three with John the Baptist, he's the groom. He just comes out and says it. Um, and in case we maybe have a bit of a negative connotation with the word husband, let's look at Paul in Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and as Christ gave himself up for her in order to make her clean by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Christ nourishes and tenderly cares for his church, 
And that's the vision for husbands that the Bible has in mind. And when Jesus calls himself the bridegroom here, he's talking about his desire to serve us and to transform us and wash us and tenderly care for us. It's devotion as it should be. We're invited to think of God as the one who should inhabit that place deep inside of us that we often put lesser things in. And in case you're not sure how the Bible ends with Revelation chapter 19, it goes like this. Let us rejoice and be extremely happy and give God glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. But here we are, 2,000 years later, still as a people with God on, and Christ on his knee offering his hand for us. And we ask that question over and over and over again. Well, why should I put my hand back in his? Why should I give everything that's important to me into Christ's hands? Why should I let Christ be over all? If Jesus is kneeling with his hand out, can I trust him with my life? So here we are, right off at the start of the gospel, we're offered a powerful figure who is not just interested in getting our taxes or our loyalty, but he wants our hand and in doing so wants all of us in a way that we might call devotion. And some of you might not know that word or it may not be familiar to you, the word devotion. So I'm just going to unpack it here really quickly. You know, when we use devotion in our culture, sometimes we say, I'm a devoted sports fan. I'm devoted to this particular team, which means you own the t-shirt, you watch every game, and you amaze me because you can like actually list off the whole roster. And that's amazing. I can't even imagine being devoted that, in that way, but it's awesome. Uh, so it's a, it's a full-on, full focus, this is my thing. Or we say sometimes, maybe if you're a sports person or a musician growing up, maybe someone came to you and said, if you want to get really good at something, you've got to devote yourself to it. And in that sense, what you do is that you give a focus in your life, uh, a specific focus to one craft, and as you devote yourself to it, you become a master. Or some of you might hear, know the word devotions, which, you know, if maybe at a Bible camp or at a youth group, uh, you hear that this word devotions, and it kind of means that you spend 15 minutes in the morning in the scriptures, which is great, and it's a wonderful thing. We need to do that in the morning to wash our minds from its darkness and to put the light of God into it over and over again. But by devotion here, I mean, like, a, like the scriptures are saying, like a spousal devotion by putting all that is valuable to us, everything that we treasure, even our own future death, into Jesus' hands and experience his love in return. And as we look at Jesus this semester, that's the thread that we'll be pulling through Mark with this question which is so important. Not just how to be devoted to Jesus, but why? Why is Jesus worthy of our devotion? And no matter where you're coming from today, whether you're a strong believer or maybe you've been struggling with doubts for a while or maybe you've been traumatized by the church or maybe right now you're feeling just a little bit rebellious, uh, maybe you're having a hard time or maybe today you're someone who really wants nothing to do with Jesus. It's okay, wherever you're at. This semester, I'd like to help you answer this question for yourself as we 
repeatedly come through the, the book of Mark. Why is Jesus worthy of our devotion? So before we end today, before we land the, the ship, we have a few minutes left here um, by 11.15. I want to just give you a little, a few insights into why I think Jesus is worthy of my devotion. And not, be, not a whole testimony, but just a few little kind of snapshots into my past uh, to get, help you get, get to know me a little bit. I've met a few of you, and I can't wait to meet so many more of you in different uh, contexts. Um, I'm available for you if you, if you need to talk. Um, we have lots of great people who are going to walk alongside of you spiritually. Um, but I want to help you get to know some of me through these sermons as well. And so I picked three different little snippets out of my life that are kind of uh, woven together to help you understand a bit of my devotion to Jesus. So the family that I grew up in was great, um, loving parents, good neighborhood, um, lots of adventure, especially in the woods, so I appreciate you cluing into that early, Steve. Um, a few things happened, though, in my sixth grade year um, that changed just a lot of how I saw the world. The first thing had to do with my family. My dad's mom, Rosemary, who was probably one of my biggest fans, all my sports games, spoiled at Christmas. She was just this incredible woman. Uh, she was born a farm girl in Illinois in the early 1900s. And early on in her life, she contracted a disease. I don't even know what it is. I don't think our family remembers what it is, but it made her like 99% deaf. And so if we weren't careful when we were over at her house playing, if we screamed or squelched or if we were playing our recorder or something, she would just like scream like, ah, because her, ear, her um, uh, hearing aids were turned up so high that they would come through and just like pierce her. And so she would turn them off and carry on and go on cooking in the kitchen. We loved that woman. But my sixth grade year, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And one summer, we got the awful news. We were on vacation, and we got the awful news that she needed surgery immediately. Um, and she did. And after that, she really never recovered consciousness. Uh, and she struggled on for 14 months in a nursing home in a coma. Uh, so that's, if that's kind of the snippet one. Snippet two, during that time, uh, about sixth grade year, I was also having problems on the friend front. I grew up as part of the, a group of kids who I guess we consider ourselves the popular kids. Uh, we, liked, we were the best at sports. We were the king of the playground. We're a great thing to be a king of, right? Um, we thought we were really something. It'd take too long to tell you all the details, but one day that group of friends, and I don't even know why to this day, they decided to exile me. <laughs> they didn't want me anymore. And so I ran out to recess one day, and they had planned that whenever I would come to join them, they would run away. And then wherever they'd go next, I'd follow them, and then they'd run away. Um, and so it took me a few times to get to the point, but uh, Tracy Seiler is one of the popular girls, and I don't even know why I remember her name. <laughs> but she nailed it home. She came up to me cruelly and said, Keith, don't you understand? They don't want to be your friend anymore. It was like a nail in the coffin, and that was it. I was exiled. And trust me, it's okay. You should have seen how some of them did high school and you should see some of them now. <laughs> so it was a godsend, really. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know it then. My sixth grade self, uh, all I knew was that I wasn't wanted anymore there. And my family was reeling. And then my grandma passed. 
And then I was headed on into middle school, and I put up this giant stone wall around my heart. And inside, I was brooding, filled with questions of my own worth. Am I really wanted? Well, fast forward into high school, snippet three, and I started to recover a bit socially. I got some new friends, and I was finding myself a bit. And I also found God partway through, um, through a ministry called Young Life. Come on. Uh, So I grew up Catholic and had a great experience with the church, but Young Life really helped me understand it, what it was all about. And yes, uh, I was growing and I found God, but I was still wrestling with what that sixth grade experience had done to me. So I was a junior, uh, heading into my junior year near the end of of that year when I, then I I kind of first started the, I first had the courage to start dating and to really open up to someone. And I found a girl who I thought the world of. And I think she really liked me too. Uh, She was a senior, I was a junior, but I was really a stone fortress. I had learned to keep people at a safe distance in order to kind of puff up my own sense of worth. I was like kind of overdid my confidence a little bit out of insecurity. And as you can imagine, that relationship was a bit of a train wreck. Uh, And after uh, a concert that spring year, she drove me home and rightly dumped me. And I kind of deserved it and neglected her big time. But it just came to me then as another wave of rejection. And that summer, my family was on vacation on the beaches of North Carolina. And there I was, deeply broken, sad, in touch with my sinfulness. And something happened to me there that I really can't quite describe. Um, I've tried and I'll try. It's almost as if God came really close to me and said, Keith, You know that place in which you can't really trust anyone? That place that you want to fill with a girl? It's like, that's where I belong. It's like he was on his knees on the beaches of North Carolina offering his hand to me once again. And said to me something like, and with me there, if you let me into that spot, I will tend to you and wash you and build you up. And so I did. I opened that door in that moment that Jesus was knocking on. And my senior year that year was worlds different. Now there's lots more to this story and I'm gonna tell some more over the course of the semester, but I wanted to tell this story today because one thing I know and I wanna tell you, and one of the reasons why I believe that Jesus is worthy of our devotion, because he comes to the most intimate places of our lives and he heals it. Not just a king, but he's also a groom. Or to take it out of the metaphor, a king interested in the most intimate part of our lives who has the power, and he does, to turn the stony parts of our heart into flesh. And he's done that for me for the last 20 years. And the place, you know, I try to think of where I would be today if that rejected, insecure human being had never opened that door. I think I'd be a massive train wreck of a human being um, and with, with a heart of stone. But he's, and it's, and it's not that he's just come in and dwelt there and this shiny light happened and everything was better. That's not how that works. He's taken me through a beautiful set of experiences in my life where he's taught me that I can trust and I can reach out and I can be soft. Um, so I stand here today having walked a life of devotion for Christ for 20 years. And sometimes when that stony com- stoniness comes out, you know, it still does. But what ha- what's happened to me is that not only have I been healed from that experience 
and given a chest, but I've also learned to really love and see people who've been rejected and really care for people who are at the margins of their life and care for people who go through experiences which wound them at the core of their own sense of self-worth. And I can see you and walk alongside of you. And I actually, one of the things about big games that I loved, I loved the mosh pit at the end. You guys all dancing, you know, and like, it was amazing. And you know, like, I think if I weren't 40, I probably would have tried to get in there with you, otherwise I would have broken a kneecap or something. But it was fun and you have joy and I loved watching it. And that was so fun and you should never stop having joy. But I loved also kind of witnessing the courageous people on the outskirts. I don't know if you're here today because it wasn't your thing at all. And some of you are kind of like courageously still there. So why, why is Jesus worth our devotion? That's where we're going um, this semester with, with Mark. And it's not just sentimental stuff. Jesus is strong in the face of cultural pressures. He's a freedom fighter. He embodies compassion and justice. He's courageous. He's the Lord of the storm. Uh, he is both humble and authoritative, and he likes to share his power. He's a truth-telling rescuer, a slave-freeing strong healer. He's a community maker, a love defender. At the age of 33, he was a master at reading the human heart. He was a revealer of God's mysteries. He was full of integrity, a faithful prince. And as one author put it, he stood head and shoulders above his peers without ever seeming aloof. Jesus is worthy of our devotion and we are gonna dive into that. And we're gonna paint the picture more fully. What does it look like uh, to come under Jesus, submitting every aspect of our life to him? We're gonna look a little bit about what resistance to Jesus might look like in this life. We have to ask the question, is Jesus even real? Is he even alive or is God even real? Some of you, that's where you're at and that's the question that we need to deal with. Um, we're gonna get into all that today. But my hope is and my prayer is, is that as we do that, that those of you who are intrigued with Jesus, or those of you, let's start here, those of you who don't want anything with Jesus might move to being intrigued by him. And those of you who are intrigued by Jesus come to a deeper admiration of him. And those of you who are, admire Jesus already come to a love of him. And those of you who already love Jesus just a little more this semester can knit your heart together with him. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.